Well, good morning again, everyone. It's so great to be worshiping with you this morning. My name is Aaron, and I'd like to give you uh, an extra special welcome to anyone who might be new today, who might be visiting for the second or the third time. Uh, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Washera Community Church is gathered is a gathered group of Christians who exist to give creative and meaningful worship to God and to discover and develop disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we strive to love God and love others fervently. And we hope that you'll come along with us on that journey, gathering together as one body, uh, worshiping Christ. We do have a few announcements this morning. The first one is next week, September 18th, after a second service, we have the survey says barbecue and potluck. Uh, we invite you to come out for that because we'll be hearing the results of the survey that most of you took. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, and they're just going to, the elders are going to come out and they're going to help summarize what we found, uh, what you answered, and what that might mean for the future of the church. Uh, so this is a really important time and we hope that you'll join us. Uh, and the last announcement this morning is the men's breakfast, which is Saturday, September 24th at 8 a.m. Uh, we'd love for you to come out uh, and join us for that morning. Pastor Adam's going to lead us that morning in a few things as we gather together. Uh, if the ushers could come forward uh, as we prepare to worship through giving. We also want to remember in prayer our supportive missionaries of the week, Pastor Dennis and Vania Agri with the Christian Revival Church Association in Liberia, Africa. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We are thankful that you promise you are here with us. May your spirit lead and move us this morning as we are gathered to lift your holy name. Jesus, you are above all things, greater than all things. We have come here to put our hope in you, our trust in you. We have come to give you glory, honor, and praise. And you are deserving of it and so much more than we are able to muster up each and every day. But may you be glorified and may this time together be a sweet aroma to you, a sweet incense that is pleasing to you. This morning as we have gathered, we give of ourselves uh, both physically, uh, mentally, emotionally, and financially. May this offering be used to support and lift up your work, your word, and the uh, furthering of the gospel uh, everywhere where our hands can go, everywhere our hands can touch, and even those places our hands can't go. We send others out to do the work, and this morning we pray specifically for Dennis and Vania Agri and their family who have been so faithful to follow you to lift up your name, to create worshipers wherever they go, to plant new churches, not just uh, churches of people just gathered together, but that they would glorify you and lift up your holy name and then go and teach others about you. As they train, as they prepare, would you be with them? Would you provide for them uh, physically, emotionally, financially, everything that they need, Lord, you know those things. And may this offering just be a part of that uh, seeking to see their ministry grow uh, and be fruitful. Father, we thank you for this time here together, thankful that we have the freedom to gather in this place to sing about your holy and great and awesome name. We thank you, we praise you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.
Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be in this place today. Guide me as I speak and guide this congregation as they listen. May I be faithful to scriptures I teach, and may they keep that which is from you and discard that which is not. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. <clears throat> Before I get started, I would, thought I would share a bit of, about myself for those of you who don't know me. My name is Scott Kingston, and our family has been attending WCC since 2015. My wife, Carrie, and I have three children, David, Sam, and Kava. This church has been a huge blessing to our family. I was recently elected to serve as an elder at WCC, and I was approached about the position before the uh, announcement of Al's retirement. I have to admit that I had reservations about becoming an elder after I found out that Al was leaving, and I let him know that. However, Al, in his gentle way, reproved me, saying that our church needs people to press into the discomfort of change rather than running away from it. So it is both humbling and a bit intimidating for me to serve in this role, especially at this time. If becoming an elder didn't knock me out of my comfort zone enough, being asked to preach certainly did. And just as an aside, any complaints about my message can be forwarded to Jim Gardner, the chairman of the elder board. But in all seriousness, if we as elders are asking all of you to step up and lean in, which we are, then we must be willing to do the same. I've never been to seminary, so it's not easy for me to write or deliver a sermon, but I do love the Word of God. Bible reading has been by far the most important aspect of my spiritual journey. I'm consistently amazed how, at how God reveals himself in fresh ways through Scripture, at how the Holy Spirit gives me new eyes to see something in a passage that I've never seen before, how the Bible reads me more than I read it. My heart, like yours, is deceitful. But when I read scripture, God faithfully that reveals that deceit and leads me towards repentance. This book is a miracle. It is living and active. It is the voice of the triune God speaking to the world and to each of us individually. The more I get to know the Bible, the more I realize how little I know. We live in a culture of lies coming at us from all sides. And we know that lies are the adversary's main weapon. We as a congregation need to know the truth contained in this book is indeed the sword of the Spirit. It was during a recent reading of Paul's letter to Titus that I was struck by the relevance of Paul's words to the cultural moment that we find ourselves in today. Specifically, we're, we're going to be looking at Titus chapters, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. One important part of Bible study is context, understanding the author's inspired intent. The who, what, where, and why is critically important so that we interpret scripture correctly. Paul is writing to Titus, a Greek disciple who is mentioned in both Galatians and 2 Corinthians, as Paul's companion and aid in multiple difficult situations. Titus was commissioned by Paul to help churches on the island of Crete, which is right smack dab in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's part of Greece. Crete was a Roman province, and uh, Paul had commissioned Titus to. Uh, help him navigate a variety of challenges that he faced. It's important that we look at the Cretan culture this, at the time this letter was written, for the context is in some ways different from that of our culture. However, as with all scripture, it also speaks to us and teaches us as individuals and churches in our specific cultural moment. Interestingly, 
According to Jeremiah 47.4 and Amos 9.7, the Philistines originated in Kaftor, which has been identified as the island of Crete. Even to this day, the terms Philistine and Cretan can be used as an insult to imply that someone is brutish or uncivilized. My apologies to any Cretans or Philistines out there. Paul in Titus chapter 1 verse 12 basically states that Cretans are liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Philistines in the Old Testament were a constant thorn in the side of Israel, not only due to the physical battles they fought, but also because Israelites were tempted to worship Philistine gods as well as the gods of other nations. This mixture of belief systems can be referred to as syncretism. It is a violation of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and was one of the main offenses that led to the Babylonian exile. Syncretism was deeply harmful to the Christian church in Crete as well. According to the Bible Project, the main pagan god of Crete was Zeus. In Crete mythology, Zeus and most other little g gods were born as humans on Crete and became gods through their accomplishments. So men became gods, the polar opposite of Christian theology of God becoming man. This mythology was such a foundational part of Cretan culture that Cretan Christians projected some of their beliefs about Zeus onto Jesus. This was not good, not only because the Zeus the Cretans worshipped was a liar and a womanizer, but he was actually celebrated for having these qualities. So now that you have a bit of background, let's dive into the scripture. As I said, I'm going to focus on Titus 3, but I'd like to start with a brief overview of chapters 1 and 2. If you go back in your notes from recent sermons, there's a lot here that looks like 1 Peter. As Pastor Adam frequently reminds us, Paul and Peter sound a lot alike because they're writing under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit. Paul starts out the book in chapter 1 by emphasizing that our God is a God of truth in contrast to Zeus. He also stresses the need to appoint strong leaders and rebukes those who teach falsehoods and fail to do good. In chapter 2, he emphasizes the importance of sound doctrine and encourages men and women, both young and old, slave and free, to live in a particular way. And then he goes into chapter 3, which is on page 1859 in your Blue Bibles. I'm going to start out with Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, where Paul gives an amazing statement on gospel doctrine. Then I will zoom out to the rest of the passage and discuss how we should live in light of God's saving grace. So, Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. To me, this is one of the most beautiful expressions of the good news in Scripture. Notice how all three persons of the Trinity are present and active in the act of salvation. Notice the attributes of God our Savior's kindness, love, mercy, generosity, and grace. Notice what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are accomplishing for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Saving, rebirthing, renewing, justifying, adopting as heirs, and granting eternal life. Perhaps most importantly, notice how the saving act has nothing to do with our righteousness. Notice also that verse 4 starts out with the word but. 
Pastor Adam has said that we need to pay special attention when we see this word in scripture. Why would Paul start the passage with this word? What is he contrasting? We have to zoom out to verses one through three to understand. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. For at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. What Paul is doing here, through inspiration by the Holy Spirit, is critically important. He is telling the Cretan Christians, in light of the gospel of grace, how they should live, and to remember where they came from. Paul's reminders apply to Christians today as we live our lives in a culture that bears some similarity to Crete in the first century. Let's walk through this step by step. And I want to preface this by acknowledging that I have a long way to go on this. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll see that in some ways we all have work we can do in these areas. So, how should we live in light of the gospel? One, Paul is telling the Cretans to be subject to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. To be obedient to the same Roman authorities who had subjugated Paul's people and crucified his Savior. The same authorities who had already imprisoned him once prior to the writing of this letter. The same Roman authorities who would go on to violently persecute Christians. Pastor Adam has taught extensively on Peter's admonishment to obey authorities. What does this mean for us today? I believe that it means that we obey unless we are compelled to deny our faith, silence our witness, or break one of God's commandments. Primarily, we obey God, our ultimate authority. Secondarily, we obey those to whom he has given authority. We are blessed to live in a democracy and to have benefited from the freedoms and rights granted to us by our Constitution. What do we do as Christians if a number of those rights begin to be taken away, as some reasonably fear they might? we must remember that Christianity has historically thrived in an environment of persecution when Christians are faithful to following the way of Jesus. We have to determine what is more precious to us, our Christian witness or our rights as American citizens. Someday, we may live in a world where we can't have both. Two, Paul is telling them to be ready to do whatever is good. Are we ready to do whatever is good? Every day, we are presented with opportunities opportunities to be true ambassadors to the kingdom of God with our family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, and total strangers, to care for both believers and unbelievers in tangible ways through both words and deeds. There are formal and informal ministries opportunities available to each and every one of us. Will we take these opportunities to advance God's kingdom? Three, slander no one, no one. We as Christians must never speak or repeat lies about others. In our social media age, lies about people are presented as fact and spread like wildfire. Anytime we spread lies, we are being used as a tool by Satan. Jesus speaks to the devil in John chapter 8, verse 44, as a murderer from the beginning. 
not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is saying that lies are literally the spawn of Satan. We have to make sure that we are not believing or spreading lies. And today there are lies everywhere, including both sides of the political spectrum. If we call ourselves people of truth, then we must love the truth. We damage our Christian witness anytime we promote lies or when we support individuals who habitually lie. If it's not true or it may not be true, then don't speak it. Be peaceable and considerate. This doesn't need explanation, but it is a way of life. As Christians, we should be the most peaceable and considerate people in our culture. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. When those in the world are shouting and insulting each other, we should stand apart as people who are not willing to dishonor the name of Christ by doing the same. In Matthew 5.22, Jesus states, Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Yet I have seen in overtly Christian physical and social media spaces, Banners that say things like, ban idiots, not guns. Or let's go Brandon, which is intended to be a profane slur on our country's leader. I'm all for the Second Amendment, and it's okay to disagree with our president, as I do on many, many things. But scripture makes it clear that it is objectively wrong to treat any of God's image bearers this way. As James chapter 3, verse 9 through 11 states, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Show true humility toward all men. We live in a culture where being right often seems more important than being in relationship. Where we are trained by the media and many politicians to see those whom we disagree with is less than human. Instead, we need to have the humility of Paul, who in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, refers to himself as the chief of all sinners. He was more, of, more aware of and concerned with his own sin than the sin of others. That's humility. As you know, the opposite of humility is pride. The phrase, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, is important enough to occur three times in Scripture, in Psalms, 1 Peter, and James. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, and I quote, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind, unquote. May we all have the humility to know to the depths of our hearts, that our standing, our righteousness before God has nothing to do with what we have done. It is because of his mercy. When Paul tells us to show true humility toward all men, he means all men, Christians and non-Christians alike. I want to be more humble. I need to be more humble. Do you? Lewis closes his writing on pride with the following. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggest step, too, at least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed.
unquote. So why should we be obedient, ready to do what is good, slander no one, be peaceable and considerate, and show true humility toward all men? Because at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Remember who you are without Jesus. And remember that when you feel malice, envy, or hatred towards another, regardless of their beliefs, then you are following the way of the world and not the way of Jesus. If you search your heart and find malice there, I encourage you to examine what voices you are listening to. Are you listening to your own voice, ruminating about how you have been wronged or slighted, that grinding feeling you get when you know you are in the right? At least I get that feeling. Is talk radio, TV news media, or social media the constant noise in the background of your life? You must remember that what you fill your mind with forms your heart. The media wants to inflame your malice because that is what keeps you engaged and your engagement is what makes them money. Our culture is marinating in a toxic stew of malice. And unfortunately, it is oozing into the American church. Brothers and sisters, this scripture convicts me. We have to remember who each of us was and is without the grace of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember where you came from and be grateful and humble because of it. In the Old Testament, God frequently tells Israel to remember and do not forget. Remember the Lord your God. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and remember the wonders which he has done. And the reason they need these constant reminders was because they, like all of us, we're prone to this desire to go back to Egypt. We're prone to wander. We need to remember where we came from and who we are without the saving grace of Jesus. Because if we don't remember, we will either judge or become like the world. I, like Paul, need to realize the importance of seeing myself as the chief of all sinners. We have to remember the depth of our sin and what we've been rescued from. And we have to make sure we're not living in malice and envy. And if we're being hated, that we're being hated for the right reasons, for following Jesus and for loving the unlovable. Because thanks be to God, we were loved when we were unlovable. And we are loved when we are unlovable. Zooming out a bit further, in Titus chapter 3, verse 8, Paul concludes our passage with the following. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Why do we not present the gospel message more often like Paul does here, with a statement on what it should mean for how we live our lives in terms of repentance and obedience to Christ? In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus states, If you love me, keep my commands. And again in John 14, 23, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. We are saved only through belief and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But that belief should be much more than intellectual assent to a theological doctrine. It should be marked by a spirit-led commitment, motivated by gratitude, to follow the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave us, as recorded in Matthew 22, 37-39. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. In many ways, Romans chapter 12 parallels Titus chapter 3. In Romans 12, 
1 and 2, Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. To offer our bodies as living sacrifices means to lay down our rights. It doesn't mean that we have to be pushovers. It means we need to center ourselves on Jesus. In Titus 3 and Romans 12, Paul is saying that the pattern of this world is to live in malice and envy, being foolish, deceived, disobedient, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We tend to think of passion as being only sexual, but it's not. What are you passionate about? What arouses deep feeling, perhaps anger or even malice in your heart? Near the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 12, verse 20, he writes, For I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. Paul is writing this to believers because he knows that they are capable of these feelings and behaviors. I am inclined to these things as well, but for the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit. I have come to realize that I am at my most dangerous when I am convinced that I am right about something and have the moral high ground. This is when I most likely to feel anger and contempt and when my heart is most at risk of not being in harmony with the Holy Spirit. I've been involved in church ministry and missions leadership in one capacity or another over the course of almost two decades. And without a doubt, the thing that I've seen damage or destroy ministries and churches more than anything else is interpersonal conflict between fellow believers. It is to my shame that I have been part of this, regardless of whether or not I was right. How can this happen when we have the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit? May it be that I would rather be wrong and full of grace than right and full of malice. We are to look different. We are not to follow the pattern of this world. We are to be salt and light. We are to be love where there is hate. As Paul says, we must stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. I'd like to finish with an illustration from scripture that contrasts the pattern of this world with the pattern of the kingdom of God. The way of the world is represented by a man named Lamech. He appears in Genesis chapter 4, and I encourage you to turn there now. Lamech was Cain's great-great-great-grandson. As many of you know, after Cain murdered Abel, God sent him into exile. After his banishment, Cain told God that he feared that whoever found him would kill him. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 15, God says to Cain, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. The number seven in scripture usually symbolizes completeness or perfection. So, since you can't kill someone seven times, I believe God is saying that his vengeance against a potential murderer of Cain would be complete and perfectly just. Getting back to Cain's descendant, Lamech, he says the following to his wives in Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Ada and Zilha, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. 
If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Lamech says, I'm going to take my vengeance 77 times. God's perfect vengeance and justice was not enough for Lamech. He had to take matters into his own hands. So begins the overzealous retribution and violence that has scarred our world ever since. Now turn to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. And look at the complete contrast of Lamech with Jesus Christ. When asked by Peter how many times one should forgive a brother, is it seven times? Jesus says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Could it be that Jesus is pointing back to Lamech's statement in Genesis 4 to show that the way of God's eternal kingdom is so different from that of fallen man? One is excessive in cruel malice and vengeance, and the other is extravagant grace. Are we part of the kingdom that says, if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you far worse? Or do we follow the way of the true King Jesus, who said, as he was nailed to the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Let's pray. Lord, we need your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit to live out these words. The first step to that is a humble awareness of who we are without you. As David says in Psalm 51, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Lord, let our spirits be broken where they need to be broken. Help us to be a people who are obedient, peaceable, considerate, and truly humble. We cannot do it without you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Scotty, for your message, your conviction, your humility, and your transparency and sharing what God is doing in you, but what he asks of us. So um, I'm Scott Aberderis. I'm one of the elders here alongside with Scott Kingston, Jim Gardner, Tom DeMeyer. Um, and I'm really excited to be able to have an opportunity to share with you um, the direction of WCC as the elders, our, your elders, um, have been seeing I want to be able to let you know at this point where we're going to be going. So we've been working really hard um, during the transition of Pastor Al retiring, um, acquiring uh, Pastor Adam as our interim, and, and also taking the steps necessary to get to Pastor Next, which will be down the road. Um, but anytime change is occurring, there's room for uncertainty, and there's anxiousness that will set in. However... With God, there is certainty and there's peace. So your elder board has been looking at the strengths, the growth areas, and the purpose of our existence here over the past few months prior to Adam even coming. Um, and in doing so, we've discerned what changes need to be made to further God's kingdom here in this community, here in this local body, and in Washira County. One of the fundamental principles that we looked at was our mission statement. Um, it's to glorify God, to discover, and to develop disciples of Christ. If we identify ourselves as Christians, Christ followers, it's important for us to know that we should be more like him spiritually with knowledge 
I want to take you to 1 Peter 14 and 16. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust from which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And secondly, now that we have knowledge, we need to be able to put this in play as indeed. And that's by loving one another, <clears throat> excuse me, and giving grace. First Corinthians 13 talks about love. The last verse, it says, now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of them is love. One area of focus in which we want to deepen and to strengthen is the spiritual maturity of this flock, this local body. And in order to accomplish this, the elders are proposing a change in our weekly Sunday service schedule. First and foremost, going to one designated worship service as we are here right now. Two, going to a church-wide, from adults to the littles, having a Sunday school service secondly. So those two things was what we're proposing to go to. We looked at our attendance over the past few months, the numbers that we have attending, um, and we feel that going to one service can accomplish this in a few ways. First and foremost, we can allow our entire congregation, our family, to be together. Secondly, we, we can foster unity. And third, embrace fellowship with one another. We also will be redirecting some current staff responsibilities, such as Pastor Robert. Robert, we asked to pivot from his focus from children's church to adult studies. Secondly, children's church will be taken over by a highly capable lay staff whom are already in place and ready to go. Thirdly, it creates a need that Robert was taken care of as well, and that's our nursery. So if you have a passion for the littles, if you have those littles yourself, we do need that ministry to be stepped up and stepped into. We need you to lean in. You can expect a church-wide letter from the elder board um, outline these changes in the next few weeks. Um, and then also be reminded that on September 18th, after the second service, Pastor Adam is going to go forth and he's going to bring out the survey says results, which is the online survey that you all took place or took part in. Um, an interesting affirmation that came from that survey that we as elders discerned was that you hunger for the word truth. We knew that a while ago, but now we got it on paper because of where your heart is. That's an area of action in our eyes. By going to church-wide Sunday school, we can achieve that goal of feeding the flock. And we do that through a smaller, more intimate group settings where relationships will and can take place. We also will encourage that the, 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 the small groups that are taking place during the week that they would continue to strive, uh, continue to thrive. Excuse me. Things to come, October twenty third. You mark, mark that down. We will be having an informative meeting with a presentation and the particulars of what I just covered, with a time for Q and A from you. And then on November sixth, 
um, we will have a congregational meeting to actually vote on this um, change. The change will take place January 1 of 2023. So we will stay status quo for the next few months. And then um, lastly, you can call any of the elders with your concerns, with your questions, um, with your attaboy, your affirmations maybe. Um, but we would welcome that. And we really want you to take this journey with us. We believe that God is moving WCC in this direction. We believe he's going to lift this body from here to here. Again, we know we have strengths, but we know we need growth area. We have them and we need them. So let me close with a verse. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So as you digest the changes that we propose I ask that you would take a good look. Where's your heart? Where's that selfishness, maybe that pride, maybe the things that will steer you away from unity and move you towards division? That's Satan's work. And as I said before, and as I heard it, God calls us to be holy because he is holy. And if I say I'm a follower of him, then I better start looking at his word and looking in the mirror and saying, am I? Amen? Have a great week. Amen.